Well, indeed, it's good to see everybody here again this morning, especially in light of uh, some of the ladies gone for the retreat. And I know that um, that was extra work for you men not to have somebody to prod you to get along, right? So we are glad that you're here and we are going to jump right into that which we've been talking about for the last uh, couple, three weeks. Um, and that has to do with spiritual warfare. But I would like to pray before we stop, step into the subject again. Jesus, uh, we believe in you. We believe in your resurrection. We believe that you are the life. We believe that you have come to give us freedom and that you have come to give us purpose and a destiny. Lord Jesus, we wouldn't be here if it was not for your resurrection and for your life that you have come. Lord Jesus, we lean into that which you spoke from your word today concerning ultimate truth. Lord, may you impart to our minds uh, the worldview that exists. Lord, may you help us to live out in that world all your plans and purposes. And Lord, we know in part in this day, for this hour, that is to defeat the enemy that's at hand. And so, Lord, we just remind him that he is a defeated foe and that all truth can come to be a part not only of our minds and our hearts, but a part of our life. Jesus, you said that you have come to give life and to give it to the fullest, that in you we can find freedom. We sang about that freedom this morning. And Lord, I don't know where everyone's at in this room today, but you know them. You created them in the mother's womb. You've got plans and purposes for their life, and it's not to be in bondage. It's to have freedom and hope and purpose to give glory to you in all things. So, Lord, to that end, may you bless our time in your word today. Amen and amen. So when we stepped into this series, Spiritual Warfare, I didn't quite know how it would go. Some of you have background in church. Some of you have background in the subject. Some of you maybe are just sort of cold turkey to the subject or maybe even cold turkey to church and understanding God. I want you to know, though, as I've sort of talked around the loop a little bit uh, in our life groups and our rooted groups, interacting with several of you, even questions after Sunday morning service, um, this is going pretty good. And part of me goes, should I worry that it's going pretty good? You have been receptive to hearing a subject that's not spoken about very often in churches, let alone the world. And I want to again step into it this morning by saying thank you for your openness of your heart and learning and growing and, hey, push back, whatever it may be. There's questions. Um, I am one of these people that grew up in life, always want to ask the hard questions. You bring the hard questions on. I may not have answers, uh, but I'm more than glad to interact and dialogue on this subject. Because what we're stepping into in these weeks really is expanding our mind and our worldview because the tendency in our life is to become myopic. And I don't know if you've ever been hit broadsided in a car, done that? I've been T-boned by pulling out erroneously and getting hit by somebody going 65 miles an hour. And I was thrown in the side of that vehicle and I thought to myself, what in the world just happened, right? And I'm scarred from it to this day, probably. But I do not like being hit broadsided. I want to be able to see everything that's coming. And so we are trying to pull back 
all right, the blinds of the world to be able to say what really is happening in our day and age. And we've talked about the subject of evil. We've talked about, to some degree, the, the issues of suffering and all that. What's going on that's behind things? The world is not as it should be. Anybody can step back and logically look and go, it should be better than it is. Why is it not better than it is? The subject of spiritual warfare has to do with painting the worldview that there's a cosmic battle going on in our universe. And that cosmic battle isn't good versus bad. The cosmic battle is God who is bringing about his purposes in all things, but he is extinguishing some of the last flaming arrows of the evil one, a fallen angel by the name of Lucifer who is called Satan, and all of his minions that work for him. And there is evil in the world because of the fall that happened with that being in the eternal realms and also because of the fall of mankind going back to Adam and Eve, which brought about sin into our world. It's this cosmic warfare that's going on that serves as the backdrop. And one of the, time, one of the things that's often not done in circles such as ours is to look at this whole subject from um, a scholarly, a theological perspective and not necessarily from a uh, popular influence kind of perspective. I want to encourage you that we're just touching the surface of this subject as we walk through these five weeks of October. And if you want to know more, learn more, I have tons of recommendations for you. One of those books I've mentioned in the past, and I want to mention it again this morning, and that's because he does take on a very scholarly and scriptural uh, theological perspective on the subject without getting too much in the weeds and keeps it at an understanding level. And that is Greg Boyd, who has written a book called God at War. And in the front part of Greg Boyd's book, God at War, he says this, My central objective, I trust it will become increasingly apparent that the understanding of the world as being caught up in cosmic warfare constitutes one of the central threads that weave together the whole tapestry of the scriptural narrative. God's age-long but not eternal battle against Satan forms one major dimension of the ultimate canvas against which everything from creation to the eschaton, which is the end times, within the biblical narrative is to be painted and therefore understood. And I've referenced that quote before. He goes on and says this, The New Testament authors were inclined to attribute pain and suffering to the evil purposes of Satan and demons. But by contrast, we indebted as we are to Augustine, and this is where some of that comes from, a great saint in the past, are inclined to attribute pain and suffering to mysterious good purposes, quote-unquote, of God. New Testament authors were inclined to expect evil and fight against it. By contrast, for theological reasons, we are inclined not to expect it, therefore to be baffled when it occurs, but, all too often at least, Nevertheless, to strive to accept it as coming from the loving hand of providence when it occurs. The problem of evil that the New Testament authors grappled with was simply the problem of overcoming it. The problem of evil we Westerners usually grapple with is the problem of intellectually understanding what we unfortunately rarely seek to overcome. What he's saying there is in the world in which we live, we sit around and go, why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Why is there uh, brokenness? And he says in the New Testament, the writers never intellectually wrestled with the problem of evil in the world. They knew there was evil. They accepted it. And what they were challenged to do was to overcome evil. So their focus was not on sitting back and just, you know, 
uh, having a little bit of a, a chit-chat and, and intellectual conversations, trying to figure out this and that, and trying to say, well, maybe God's got something good in that that's going to come about, the providence of God. No, what he says the New Testament writers say is there is evil, there is bad things. You step back and you go, this isn't right. And they do something about it. They take evil on to overcome evil. How many of you have spent countless weeks, even months, maybe years of your life, trying to figure out why something that was evil happened to you in your life? And you're trying to make sense of it. There, there's got to be a rhyme and reason. Or, yes, God can work through evil, broken, bad things that happened to you and bring about good. There is no question about that from Scripture. But you shouldn't try to pull your hair out, trying to line it all so it makes sense, so you can sit back and go, oh, there was a reason. There's evil. There is a mastermind behind evil. There is sin and brokenness that's come into the world through his temptation all the way back to Adam and Eve. And you and I do not have to sit and try to rhyme and reason why do all the bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen because there is a bad evil entity in his kingdom. And we don't need to spend a lot of time trying to figure out the why of it all. What we need to do is take the authority of Scripture that we're going to look about today, the authority of Jesus, and we are going to engage the unseen battle. And we are going to enable every believer, and we are going to encounter the freedom through overcoming in the name of Jesus that we are called to do as Christ followers. Now, if you're just sort of checking God out, you're not necessarily a Christ follower today. This all applies to you because I tell you what, if you're going to come into a true relationship with Jesus Christ and uh, desire to live for God and the purposes he's planned for you, then you need to know the world that you're walking into. And it's not a world of, oh, here's the weird people over at church that think about this. This is the world that all of us live in, except a lot of us live in it uh, with blinders on. And we've talked about that. What I'd like to do is um, to challenge two groups of people. The group of people of, who are here who have uh, never really considered being all out a follower of God. That you take into consideration this world's a hand. And then you have to ask yourself, how do I live in this world in my own strength? Is there not another strength that needs to be in my life to live in this world and live ultimately then for the purposes of God? The other group is those of us who have chosen to do that in our life, whether maybe a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, or 10, 20 years ago. If you are a Christ follower today, then my exhortation to you is, what are you doing as a Christ follower to take upon the full commands of Jesus to overcome the evil that's at hand? Let me read for you a story that comes from a guy by the name, a pastor actually, his name was um, Dutch Sheets. He tells how while praying for an upcoming mission trip to Guatemala, he heard the Holy Spirit say to him, and the Holy Spirit means just sort of a prompting, and he's like, I believe this is God saying this to me. On this trip, represent Jesus to the people. Be his voice, his hands, his feet. Do what you know he would do if he were there in the flesh. Represent him, speaking his words, doing his works. So, Pastor Sheets had this prompting in his heart to do this. He went on this mission trip to Guatemala, and he starts begin doing ministry. 
After a week of ministry, very few people had come to place their faith in Christ and become Christ followers. Discouraging. On the final night of the trip, just before services began, some of the team members told him about a site they had seen just on the other side of the village that they, where they were preaching in. Nasty, helpless, and tied to a tree like a dog was a six- or seven-year-old little girl. When they asked the parents why she was tied up like that, they replied, Well, she's crazy. We can't control her. She hurts herself and runs away if we turn her loose. As Pastor Sheets began to preach that night, the Holy Spirit prompted and spoke to him again and said, quote, Tell them you're going to stop your sermon and go pray for that little insane demonized girl on the other side of the village and set her free from the demons that have bound her. Then they will believe that Jesus you're preaching about who he, who he is and who he says he is. In unbelief, Pastor Sheets asked the Holy Spirit, um, what is plan B? Rebellion and failure came the impression in his spirit. Remember what I said to you before the trip began. Represent Jesus. As faith began to rise, they went to the little girl and he represented Jesus. The Dutch sheet said, On a moonlit night in a tiny remote village in Guatemala with a handful of people as my audience, my life changed forever. Jesus came out of hiding. He became alive, relevant, sufficient, available. The little girl was set free, and the whole village turned to Christ, to faith in him. A yesterday Jesus became a today and forever Jesus. A Galilee Jesus became a Guatemala Jesus. Isn't that a powerful little story? And it's true. Real, real place, real time, real happenings. A Guatemala Jesus, a Galilee Jesus became a Guatemala Jesus. The Jesus of Nazareth should be the Jesus of Temecula. Do you believe that? We are to represent, represent Jesus today. And he came to bring freedom. And if you're a Christ follower today, I want to ask you again, do you have the faith? Do you have the leanings to take on an initiative like that? Whether it's to be open to the prompting of the spirit, just to reach out and be encouraging to someone who's broken in a time of need or to be able to go and find an individual, maybe the prompting and and they're bound by the dark side of the world and to pray for freedom over their life. Or do we sit around Chew our fingernails and go, you got a plan B. Is there something a little bit easier for me to do than to take upon the authority of Jesus and do that? And why do we not do it? I tell you why we don't do it a lot. I tell you why I don't do it a lot. We're worried that Jesus is not going to show up. Oh, my goodness, I'll pray and nothing happens. That would be quite embarrassing. Not only to me, I think it might be embarrassing to God. Well, let me tell you this. God, do not worry about God being embarrassed. He's big enough to take care of himself. The question is, are you going to be obedient to what he's called you and I to do? And he has called us not to sit around and complain and groan and worry and gossip and chit-chat about all the evil in the world and the brokenness. He has called us to do something about it. He has called us to become overcomers and to help other people overcome the darkness of this world and the sin that so befalls them and to set them free. And you want to see your life get jacked up. You start participating in what Jesus is doing in this real-time world and you will have a different life altogether. All together.
not just quietly moving from week to week, church meeting to church meeting, social environment to social environment, you will be on a mission. And it will be the same mission that Jesus gave his disciples when he called them together 2,000 years ago because he keeps on doing it again and again. Jesus told his disciples, greater things than these will you do because I go to the Father. They're like, oh, gas, don't leave us, Jesus. He says, trust me, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my very spirit. The spirit of Jesus dwells within you if you're a Christ follower this morning. And you, too, can do the things that Christ did, not because of you, but because of him. Greater things than these will you do because he puts his spirit within us to represent and represent him to a world. And if you're not a Christ follower this morning, I tell you what, there is no greater trip, there is no greater ride than to be able to let Jesus lead your life. He's not going to destroy it. He's going to take it in dimensions of fulfillment and hope. It's not always easy. There's still suffering because we live in an evil, broken world. But there is context, there is purpose, there is a destiny that is standing before us. And we live out a life that we were called to live out. So in this subject, what I'd like to do is just to do a really quick review of where we've been for the last few weeks. And so if you haven't been here, this is where we're, we've been and where we stand as it relates to some of our thoughts. Is my little clicker working? Number one, you have a domain and it's bigger than you think. The natural world and supernatural worlds coexist and interrelate in a realm of reality for all humans and nations. Be open-eyed. Don't exclude the middle, living in a world without windows. And we talked about this world without windows. There's the invisible things of the other world that are believed today, and there are the visible things of this world. Most often, day-to-day, 24-7, we live below in that lower section, just the visible things of this world. Every now and then we come in, we worship God on a Sunday. Maybe you read your Bible during the week. Maybe you're reminded to pray, and you're thinking, all right, there's the invisible things of the other world. But the excluded middle, as described by Peter Berger, by Paul Hibbert, is this idea of the invisible things of this world exist. And those invisible things of the world, what are they? Are there angels? Are there, is there Satan? Are there demons? Is there spirits? That's what we've been talking about, the excluded middle. And we believe from Scripture teaching, not because I'm doing a series on it, but from the Scriptures, that there is the realm of the excluded middle. The invisible things of this world and the invisible things of this world are active more than we want to give credence for them. So that was number one. We highlighted Second Kings 6.16, even though we're talking about some of the spiritual warfare and the dark side of the problem of evil and Satan and his minions. Um, there's also the idea of the angels. And Elisha was a prophet in the Old Testament. His servant uh, was scared one day because the enemy was against them. And uh, we find this in 2 Kings 6.16. Don't be afraid, Elijah told his servant, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elijah prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. So the young man went out. He looked again on the hillsides, and he realized that there were more than what his first impression was. He, the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. And Elisha won because there was more in the spiritual realm, the excluded middle. He saw it. His servant didn't. This has been my prayer, that you and I, that our eyes may be opened to be able to see all that stands before us. 
Number two is this, you have an enemy, and it's not who you think. Our fight is against the devil and his host of rulers, authorities, powers, and forces of evil in the unseen realm. Be wise and take your stand against his schemes of ignorance and fear. And with that is the verse that comes out of Ephesians 6.10 that talks about that our fight is not against the flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities and the powers and the evil forces of the dark world. I... Um, I don't know about you, but I regularly, again this week, have to remind myself of this point, that I have an enemy and it's not who I think. I think the enemy are circumstances. I think the enemy are other people. I think the enemy just may be natural opposition. Maybe it's me getting older. I don't know what it is. But I have an enemy, and that enemy is not who I think. The enemy is the adversary, his workers. And I list all these, you know, Take your stand against the devil's schemes, struggle not against flesh and blood, rulers, authorities, powers of dark world. This is talking about some type of hierarchy. There is a mixture of different forces that are at play in the unseen world that's around us in this domain where the natural and the supernatural intercollide into the excluded middle. Number three is this, though. You have a victor, and he is more than you think. Jesus Christ defeated all enemy hosts through his death and resurrection. Wasn't it great to sing about that today? Christ alone and all who he stands for and what we believe. So be strong in the Lord, fighting from victory with his divine weapons, destroying oppressive strongholds. Now, what it means to fight from victory is this idea that you've already won the ball game. In other words, we're just finishing out the latter innings. We're going maybe into extra innings. It doesn't matter, but it's already been predetermined. All right, the the enemy was defeated at the cross through the power of the resurrection. For whatever reason, I'll find out someday God's allowing him to still roam and wreak havoc on this world. But we fight from victory. We don't fight towards victory, hoping that we can pull it out in the end. The end's already been determined. And because we can fight from victory, we can destroy oppressive strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10:3 For though we walk in the flesh we are not waging war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds Verse 5 We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ This week rooted I got some of my rooted people here as rooted as a group of 17 of us going through a discipleship journey some of you have gone through it before as Joe mentioned earlier And in Rooted this last week, it was our week on there is an enemy and our week on strongholds. And we had the opportunity to talk about what strongholds are. Do you know what a stronghold is? A stronghold in the the Old Testament was when the Israelites did not take enemy territory that they should have. So they left that town, okay, we'll let the enemy stay there, we'll go over this direction. And that enemy in that town would continue to wreak havoc upon them because they never defeated that enemy. So strongholds in our personal lives are things that we've let go of, sin areas that we've not turned over to God. Maybe they're uh, passions and dimensions that are self-centered, that we sort of kept to ourselves. We don't want God invading that. And things become strongholds. And so we have to destroy the strongholds through the finished victory of Christ on the cross. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today. Number four, you have a calling and is grander than you think. Disciples of Jesus are workers sent into the harvest fields. Be obedient as and go as freedom agents of grace and peace to heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near, uh, is near you now. The kingdom referring to God's reign and rulership. 
it's at hand. It's not coming someday. It will come someday in its fullness. But when Jesus came the first time, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, sending his spirit back, there is the kingdom of God, the rulership of God is at hand. And so he told them to go and to heal the sick emotionally, physically, spiritually, and let them know Jesus is here. All right? So you have a calling, and it's grander than you think. He sent out 72 disciples. We're familiar with this passage. You've used it a couple times in the last few weeks. When the 72 disciples returned, Luke 10, 17, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. He said, yes, I saw Satan fall like uh, fall from heaven like lightning. Verse 19, look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. We're going to take that another step today. And last week, I didn't put this summation up. We said you have a battlefield, and it's broader than you think. Enemy opposition comes on three fronts, of the world, our flesh, and the devil himself. Through Christ and his cross, God's truth and mighty power renews our minds, it forgives sins, and it overcomes all evil. Colossians 2.13, God made you alive in Christ if you've committed your life to him. He forgave us all of our sins. Having concealed the large charge, canceled the large the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This diagram articulates your three battlefronts. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Comes from Ephesians 2 and other places. The ways of the world are pressing against you. The mindset, it's always there. The cravings of our flesh, the me, me, me part, that selfish, sinful nature, wanting its way at all times. And then there's what's below the hyphenated line we mentioned last week. The devil himself the ruler of the kingdom of the air. What do we deal do with in these three areas? The world, we renew our mind. The flesh, we live in the spirit. And the devil, we overcome the enemy, as we've mentioned. So, that's your review. You ready for your exam? Hopefully it's giving you context. One of my challenges during these weeks of October is to keep pulling all of us along. Because we're not able to always make it every week. So that's sort of some of the turf that we've been. I want to add a sixth one today, and it's this. You have an authority, and it is fiercer than you think. In Christ alone, through faith and prayer, you enforce his authority to win the battles. Jesus himself defeats the lies, schemes, and demons of Satan through truth encounters and power encounters. You have an authority. And it's fiercer than you think. My goal is to get you away from your fear and your passivity and get you to be bold. Because fear and ignorance are the tactics of the evil one when it comes to the spiritual realm. But he also has another tactic for Christians. 
and that is just to make us a little complacent. Yes, I know that Satan exists. All that you just said in your review, Carrie, thank you very much for going down that road. I agree. And you're not necessarily fearful because you know the power and the authority of Jesus. But it's sort of a cognitive knowing. It's not an experiential knowing all that much. And so you fall into this passivity, this complacency, or maybe just uh, negligence. And I want to get you out of your chair. And I want you to not do some weird holy Jesus dance. I don't need you shouting in the name of Jesus, raising your hands. All that's fine in one sense. I want you in your inner spirit to know the authority you have in Jesus to defeat the enemy. And to know that it's much, much more fierce of an authority than you ever gave credence to. As some of you know, I've been involved in deliverance work over a number of years, and sometimes I have prayer workers with me, and uh, we see people freed. And sometimes I'll talk to the prayer workers afterwards, and uh, I I forget sometimes not to inform them beforehand, but I say uh, afterwards, I said, well, yes, um, that was... That was Carrie in the room. I didn't get weird. You know, I converse and those kinds of things. But I am very stern and focused in a deliverance session. And sometimes afterwards I go, wow, you were, like, you were really serious there. You were well, I don't like messing with the spiritual realm. If I had my druthers, I wouldn't want to be involved in some of the deliverance work that I do, to be honest. Okay. It's not like, oh, this is sort of cool. No, but I know that there's people that need to see the authority of Christ in their life overcome areas of bondage. And when I'm in a deliverance session, I'm spot on and I'm realizing the fierce authority I've been gifted in Jesus to take it on. And when I pray, I don't pray wimpy prayers. Ever been in prayer meetings where people pray wimpy prayers? Oh, Lord Jesus, I don't know. Maybe... Maybe it could be your will, this and that, and, and I don't know. It, and they're such a nice person, and I know they've gone through so much. And you're just like, what? You have not because you ask not, or you ask amiss. Take up your authority and pray in the authority. If God doesn't answer your prayer, then there's a reason he doesn't answer your prayer. Sometimes God says, you know, the request is wrong, so you need to change your request. Sometimes he says, you are wrong, you need to grow up and change, and I'm going to change you through this. Sometimes he says, the timing's wrong, and so, you know, just slow down a little bit. I'm working my ways here. But at no time do I ever pray double-mindedly, going, well, maybe a little bit of this, maybe not. Could you, God? I don't know. No, I want to pray authoritatively. Not because I have authority. Jesus has authority. And when I pray, I'm going to leave it to his jurisdiction, but I'm his servant. And when he sent out the 72 and they came back all joyful because the demons submitted to them in their name, I don't think they went out in a wimpy manner. They might have went out in a little bit of a fearful manner. But they went and enforced the authority of Jesus with fiercity, and they saw people changed. And so I want to make sure that when we pray as individuals and we pray as a church, we pray with confidence. And that confidence is not in our authority, but in the authority of Jesus. And that authority is much more fierce than you think. And if you don't think it, 
then we're going to look at three passages, if we have time today, to show you the fierce authority of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the temptations of Jesus. We're going to look at the demoniac of the Gerasenes of Jesus freeing him. And if there's time, we're going to look at Jesus healing a man's son from demons. Luke 4, 1 through 13, the temptations of Jesus. You can read in your scriptures. I put most of the passage up here online. We'll try to break it down in some different places. Luke 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He had just been baptized. All right? What happened after he got baptized? He got put up, and, and they put him in a big mega church, and he was able to just, you know, pontificate and, and, and do it. No. After it was time to go, the baptism of Jesus. He was 30 years old, so he worked as a carpenter. He grew spiritually in other ways because he was in likeness as a man. So he had to have that learning, growing process, even though he was God himself. I know it's hard to understand that. What did God do after the baptism of Jesus to start his ministry? He put him in a time of testing. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing at all that time and became very hungry. 40 days. And he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Not one day, not seven days, 40 days. He's in the wilderness and nothing to eat, very hungry, and God used that time to forge Jesus in such a way for the ministry that he would be able to overcome and defeat the enemy. We don't know how or in what way, but the devil shows up to bring temptations to Jesus. Then the devil said to him, Ah, okay, if you were the son of God, Jesus, why don't you tell this stone to become a loaf of bread? You ever been hungry? I'm not talking hungry for a day or two days or a week. Forty days. That would be a temptation, wouldn't it? But Jesus told him, no. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. He said, it is written. It is written God's word. This is true. What did Jesus do to fight the enemy in that moment? He used the authority of scripture. Truth. He didn't pick up some sword to fight him off. He picked up the sword of the word of God and he said, no, it is written, people do not live by bread alone. Now, we don't have time here this morning to go behind each one of these statements. Just know that what Jesus is doing here is taking on the enemy's attack, a temptation, and pushing back with the authority of the word of truth. And he is saying, you need to understand this, Satan, that is not God's will. All right. So that was the number one temptation that's recorded of Jesus in this passage. Then it says this. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, we don't know how he did that in the spirit or physically, whether he did it. But he says, hey, look here at all the world and all the kingdoms that existed at that time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them. How he had it or why he had it, he felt he had it. We don't necessarily know, but the devil said this to him. He says, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Oh, poor Lucifer. 
poor, pathetic Lucifer, the archangel who fell from heaven because he felt he should be worshipped and not God himself. All right? Too big for his britches, whatever you might feel it as. It was terrible, terrible in heaven when that happened because he was wrong in trying to acclaim worship. But here he is with Jesus, the Son of God, and he knew who Jesus was, God himself come in the flesh, and he says, worship me. Worship me. He's still trying to do the same antics that he did when he fell from heaven, when Jesus said that he saw him fall from heaven later on in Scripture. What did Jesus do? He replied, oh, no, no, and tried to argue his way out of it or reason. No, he picked up the word and he said, the Scripture says, it is written, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So in the spiritual realm, spiritual warfare for Jesus meant what? Grabbing a hold of truth and taking truth and shoving it in the devil's face. Have you done that recently? You got a problem going on in your life? You've been trying to figure it out? You're trying to reason your way around it? Could you maybe be ignoring the reality that this is an antic of Satan himself and you need to be in the word of God and shove scripture at his face and say, no. This is what the word of God says. So two times now we have the temptations here that Jesus and Jesus has stuck it back to him with the sword of the word of God. Let's see what else happens. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, jump off, jump off. Now, Satan's learned. Jesus just used scripture twice. Guess what Satan's going to do? He chooses to use scripture. He says, verse 10, for the scriptures say, Jesus, he will order his angels protect and guard you. And they will hold you up with his with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. I don't know. I wish I had more of the context of all the conversation that went on. Maybe Jesus was just pinpoint spot on with the scripture and dealt with it and moved on. But I tell you what, when you see the antics and the angles that Satan tries to work, here he is trying to use Scripture for his own means because Jesus had been using it. He's sly. He's tricky. There's a reason he's called the serpent. So what did Jesus do? Verse 12, Jesus responded again. The Scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Hmm. What a little interesting episode put in the Bible. Right after Jesus' baptism, but before Jesus begins to do his earthly ministry, 40 days in the desert, tempted by the devil three different times, he takes the authority of the scripture, he pushes it back in Satan's face and said, you can't have none of what the Father's will is for me. Get behind me. And so the devil did go behind him, but the devil did not leave. It says he left him until the next opportunity came. There were three years of ministry that Jesus had between this moment and the cross. Where do you think the devil was at? He was around every turn. In subtle and small ways, trying to thwart the will of God by getting God's son to thwart the father's will to be obedient to death on a cross, dying for our sins, and being raised from the grave. You might think Satan's disappeared from your life, 
but his workers and his minions will seek to wreak havoc at every turn until the day that you cross from this life into the next into the arms of God. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, the scriptures say, until that day, you have an enemy. It's not who you might think. It's the enemy of Satan and his workers working to bring destruction and death in your life. I'm sorry. I wish you could get out of it. I wish I could get out of it. But it's the world in which we live. We have an enemy and we have to be able to fight against it. So this diagram, the world, the flesh, and the devil, I want to position to you one of the key aspects that you need to do to fight the enemy is what I call a truth encounter. A truth encounter. I remember when I um, struggled with assurance of my salvation as a young boy. And I thought, oh my goodness, if I was to die tonight, do I go to heaven? Even though I had made a commitment to follow Jesus, I had insecurity, trouble. God took me to a place of memorizing the verse in John where it says, these things I have written to you that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in my name and that you may know that you have eternal life. And I would take that verse, I would write it down, and I would say, this verse, Satan, reminds me that I believe in Jesus and that if I believe, I will have eternal life in his name. I couldn't fight it with my own emotions and feelings. I had to fight it with scripture, with truth. Have any of you ever felt accusation, condemnation over and over again for something you did in life? What does it say in Romans? Romans 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I don't matter how you screwed up, how you fell. When you come to Jesus and you ask him to forgive your sins, it's past, present and future. His grace is sufficient. And so he sees you not as a broken, woeful sinner. He sees you as a child of God if Jesus lives in your life. And so when the tempter comes and he says to you, no, 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 look what you did. Who do you think you are? That's your tag. That's your title. And maybe it's a friend that tells you that and reminds you. Maybe it's your own spouse that reminds you. You're just this kind of person. You're not changed any. You just need to look back, sort of like Jesus did at Satan, uh, did at Peter when Peter was trying to get him not to go to the cross. He just looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Now, I wouldn't probably recommend that for your spouse, all right? But you need to recognize lies that are coming from the evil one. And sometimes they come through the people with the best intentions. And you need to just look at it and say, no, get behind me, Satan. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That includes me. All right? And we could go verse after verse after verse of the scriptures. The scripture is your truth. It's your sword to pick up, to pick up and attack the enemy. And to defeat him. It's a truth encounter. Truth encounters for the ways of the world, for the, uh, the, way, uh, the cravings of the flesh are essential. It's also essential for fighting the devil himself. But more often than not, our battles in the world and the flesh, and that's where the majority of our battles are at, above the hyphenated line, they need to have truth encounters to be able to sustain strength. Reading the Bible is just not a nice little thing that they taught you to do at church, and you could check it off your list and feel better. This is my authority 
this is my truth. This is my sword by which I defeat the enemy. I was reading through some scripture this week, and I was just being bowled over by the goodness of God and my identity in him. It was in Ephesians 1 and 2, and I was just thinking, wow, this is, I'm seated with him in the heavenly realms. Have that one, Satan. You think I'm a loser to your friend? Well, do you know that I'm a co-heir with Christ? Do you know what my destiny is? No, it doesn't mean you get arrogant with it, but you reside upon truth. And you enforce that truth into a situation. So hopefully, with that exhortation, all of you are really hungry this week to go and spend time in God's Word. Really, how many times do you need to go over and over and check your Facebook? Think about how much Scripture you could read by the time you just spent a half an hour on social media. You hear what I'm saying? Friends, we do what we want to do. I do it. Myself, I find myself slipping away from spending time in God's word. So that authority of Jesus is primarily a truth authority, a truth encounter. But there's a second, and that is the power encounter. And oftentimes this is what's needed when it's below the hyphenated line. Let's look at Luke 8:26. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. This is the most probably violent case mentioned in a week ago that we find in Scripture of Jesus healing a demonized person. So they arrived, it says in verse 26 of Luke 8, in the region of the Gerasenes across the lake from Galilee. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. Then he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. Isn't it interesting that the demons knew immediately who he was? For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. This spirit had often taken control of the man. Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness completely under the demon's power. Now, a couple of things to mention here. One is the reality that Jesus took authority here. The demon did speak back to Jesus, but Jesus, it appears that the demon didn't leave right away, which we'll flesh this out some. It'll actually be in some of the training we do um, first weekend in November. Why is this true? Why does it take sometimes a period of time for somebody to become free? So Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him, but here's the evil spirit fighting with tenacity, what do you have with us? Why are you here? Don't do this. Don't torture me. All right. Jesus demanded, what is your name? He actually asked for the name. And the demon spoke through the man, Legion, he replied. We are filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit. There's more we can talk about with that in coming weeks and that weekend. Maybe we will. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby, and the demons begged him to let them enter into the pigs. They did not like to be disembodied. So Jesus gave them permission for whatever reason, and then the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the entire herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned. A couple thousand. When the herdsmen saw it, they led to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting 
at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane. And they were all afraid. Isn't that interesting? Whoa, what just happened here? Verse 36, then those who had seen what had happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people in the region of the Gersenes begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone, for the great wave of fear swept over them. You've got to understand this. The Jewish people had been longing for a Messiah. The Jewish people were under the oppression of the Romans. Things weren't necessarily going well in the Jewish faith. There was hope, there was longing, but there was also politics and other things happening in that realm of uh, the religion during those days. They didn't expect the Messiah to actually show up and be God himself with the authority and the power of God. And this was out of the normal for them to have an individual, rabbi or whatever he might have been proclaimed as, come and have this kind of authority and power. And so they were taken back. There was a fear that swept over them. The herdsmen and other people wondered what would this mean with all these pigs that end up dying because they ran into the sea. You know, my goodness, what is this person? I don't know if we want this person around. When you see the power and the authority of Jesus really grab a hold, you're not necessarily endeared to it. Sometimes you're fearful of it because it's out of the norm. I believe Christians sometimes are fearful of the whole subject of spiritual warfare because they're not quite sure what does this mean. This is out of the norm. And whether there's the fear of being looked upon as weird or the fear of being in an unknown environment and how do I operate or maybe the fear of just being in the presence of God himself, Christians, we should not be afraid. But we should step back in awe of who Jesus is. Because what Jesus did in this moment wasn't necessarily a truth encounter, though truth is behind it. He just dealt with it directly, and he dealt with it with a power encounter based upon the truth encounter of who he was and his authority from the heavens. Big moment in time. Big moment in time. So Jesus returned to the boat and left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. But the man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him. Jesus sent him home saying, no, go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. So he went all through the town proclaiming the great things that God had done for him. I had lunch yesterday with a man who God healed neurological disease in his back. And he says, I just got a story to tell. Every doctor says this kind of nerve damage doesn't heal, but Jesus healed me. And I just want to tell people. Why? To brag? No, to proclaim the glory of God. When Jesus has the power encounters to set people free, his ultimate goal is to bring glory to himself, not because he's egocentric, because he's God and he deserves all the glory and the praise. And here was the demoniac who was freed and he went to tell everybody about the freedom that Christ brings. You want to please your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the great God of the heavens, then you go forward in his name with all authority, enforcing his power on this earth in dark places as well as in timid places, and you will bring glory to God. There's nothing you and I should desire more than to bring glory to him. And glory to him just isn't singing great songs of worship. It's acting on his behalf in a broken world. So, power encounters. 
What if you were pastor sheets and you were prompted by the Spirit to go pray for a seven, six or seven-year-old girl who was seemingly in bondage? How would you go to the other side of the village? Small little steps? Or would you go with confidence, knowing that you don't have the power, but you know the one who does, and you can enforce his authority? Truth encounters, know God's word. Power encounters, know your Jesus. And the last one we'll share real quick. Mark nine fourteen. Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy. Verse 14, when they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of the religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. Now, I would like to embellish this story. I won't, other than to say people arguing in churches is common. Some teachers of religious law were arguing. And what do you think they were probably arguing about? I don't know, maybe who Jesus was or wasn't, who the Messiah would be or who he wouldn't be. Maybe they were arguing, doing what I call theological hair splitting, trying to decide do this and that. Now, Scripture and theology is important without question. I just mentioned the authority of Scripture. But I see sometimes pettiness work its way into Christian circles where there's a lot of just debate around a subject, this and that. And Jesus is like, what are you arguing about in this situation? There is a problem at hand. Do something about it. Don't just sit around and talk about it. You've been in those kind of circles, church or otherwise? Would somebody just get up and fix the problem? Let's stop talking about the problem. That's what Jesus found himself into. Verse 17, one of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit and won't let him talk. The spirit won't. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Now, again, this is a violent, extreme case of uh, internal demonization, but it was true of this individual. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, You... Every now and then, Jesus has these one-liners, these sentences, where you just realize he's probably not the caricature that you've pictured in life. This is one of those. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. I don't know. Maybe I'll find it funny. I find that humorous. This is my Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you people are pathetic. Pathetic. That's what he's saying. How much longer do I have to hang around here? Jesus, I mean, God, beam me up. All right? But he's walking among the faithless people. Here's his own disciples, and they tried to cast this evil spirit out of him. For whatever they tried or didn't try to do, it wasn't working. Verse 20, so they brought the boy. When the evil spirit saw Jesus, this is interesting, it threw the child into a violent convulsion and he fell to ground, withering and foaming at the mouth. As soon as he saw Jesus, boom, this inner spirit, it wasn't the child's fault. That inner spirit seizes a hold of him, throws him to the ground. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy. 
The spirit often throws him into the fire, into the water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Everything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. So many things in this passage, we'll probably roll back around to it on the training weekend. But I want to make this particular point. Whether somebody is violently internally demonized or even somebody is having attacks of the enemy in their life and they know it to be true of an external nature. Jesus never condemns a demonized person in Scripture. They are a victim as surely as someone who has been raped is a victim. And we should have the compassion upon those who are underneath influences of the adversary in the same manner now jesus did condemn religious pharisaical kind of people that were thinking they were more hoity-toity moral than others he condemned a lot of things but he never condemned people that came underneath the attacks of the enemy this i believe is critical for us to see freedom in our lives our friends lives people in this valley people that come under the attacks of the enemy are not marginalized because they've done something. They have been victims. And we should treat people as victims, not as people who are big-time sinners. You hear me with that? Never in all that Jesus did did he see the person as somebody who was in that condition because of their own fault and problem. Now, you can pick up demonization issues because of things that you've trafficked in life and patterns. But more often than not, the people that I've been around, the people I've had the opportunity to pray with and pray over, they're not victims because of some sin pattern in their life. They're victims for who knows why. This was a little child. It's one of those questions I have to God when I get to heaven. A lot of, and we broached it just briefly last week, a lot of demonization issues come from as ancestral ranks and other reasons and and, and as a little child come on but jesus saw and he had compassion he also challenged the disciples and this father what do you mean if i can where's your faith when jesus saw the crowd of onlookers was growing he rebuked the evil spirit listen you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak he said i command you to come out of this child and never enter him again then the spirit screamed threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him the boy appeared dead a murmur ran through the crowd as people said he's dead but jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up afterward When Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, "Um, Hey, Master, uh, we got a question here. It's sort of been rumbling with us. Uh, What was our problem? Why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus replied, This kind can be cast out only by prayer. And another gospel says prayer and fasting. There's a lot to be taught here. We're going to go into some of this on the training weekend. But it has to do with your confidence in the finished work of Jesus. And when you pray, that you pray with authority, not your authority, but the authority of Jesus. Matthew 21, 21, when Jesus, after he rebuked a fig tree and it withered, which is an astounding story. 
Jesus told them, I tell you, if you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. You can pray for anything, and if you have faith, you will receive it. The big issue, I believe, in this is that you have the faith, not of your own strength, but you have the faith in who Jesus is and his authority. Power encounter does not happen without authority. You have no power. I have no power. There's only one who has power, and it's Jesus. That power is made active when you and I take the authority of Jesus. You ever see a police officer try to stop traffic in plain clothes? It doesn't really work too well. But if the police officer has his badge on and his uniform, he steps out and he can direct and control traffic. Why? Because he's powerful to stop a car and throw it one direction or the other? No, he has no power, but he has the authority to stand there and direct traffic. So also in the spiritual realm to defeat the enemy, power encounters in particular, you take on the authority of Jesus. And when you pray, you pray in the name of Jesus with faith and that faith activates the power of God to work. So number six, you have an authority, and it is fiercer than you think. In Christ alone, through faith and prayer, you enforce his authority to win the battles. Jesus himself defeats the lies, the schemes, and the demons of Satan through the truth encounters and the power encounters that are made. In Christ's name. Is it no wonder then, back to our Luke 10 passage, when the 72 return, they were joyful, even the demons obey us, when we use your name. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you, substitute your name. I have given you, Mike, Sally, Sarah, Bill, Bob, Carrie, insert your name. Yes, I have given you, Carrie, authority over all the power of the enemy. That's where your confidence stands. That's where you and I need to abide if we're to engage the unseen and enable every believer, beginning with herself. Lord, here this morning, I thank you. We love you. We know that you have defeated the enemy. May we as a people take upon us take upon ourselves, not in our own strength, but may we take upon ourselves your authority. Your power follows, and may we defeat the enemies of darkness. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to have...